you know, everyone thinks that entrepreneurs are risk takers. And, and, and first of all, a different subject, but I'm not even sure if there are any entrepreneurs anymore. But, but I never saw myself as a risk taker. I just saw myself as somebody who could deal with uncertainty. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew when it happened, I could deal with it. You know, and, and um, you know, that, that I would somehow, that I would get through. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Hey, before we get started, I wanted to share something with you that I'm really excited about. Every week, I offer three free coaching sessions where I help leaders focus on the complexity and messiness that we all deal with or don't deal with, as the case may be. I've done this kind of work in corporate environments for years, but recently I've started working directly with business owners. Most of my clients run companies generating six to seven figures of revenue, but they want to do more and they want to do it while having a fuller and better life too. They also want to have more impact. They want to feel like they are stepping towards their purpose in the world. What makes my clients great is that they're not afraid of doing the personal work, the hard work that's needed to make a quantum leap in their business, becoming both more successful and more at ease along the way. When we want to change something, most of us use willpower to try to push on it. We try to make more calls, we try to network more, or we try to eat better, exercise more. But in my experience, the key isn't to push harder, but to understand why we're holding ourselves back in the first place. Once we do, once we have that understanding, our resistance dissipates and the road ahead is clear and easy for us to walk. Now, the value of an outsider's perspective in this can't be underestimated, and it's one of the things I love about the work I get to do. Many times that perspective, even just a well-placed question, can be the thing that helps us shift from being stuck in the same old routines to doubling, tripling, or even 10xing our productivity, commitment to goals, our happiness, and our impact on the world. This sounds like something you're interested in. If this sounds like you, my question for you is, are you ready to make the leap? To find out more and to sign up for one of these free sessions, which are first come, first serve, go to chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. Today, we're talking with my friend, David Lavin. David is the founder of the Lavin Agency, an intellectual talent agency that represents speakers, authors, journalists, researchers, and In general, super quirky people. Full disclosure, David's my speaking agent, which is how I know him. We'll hear David's story of how, as a 20-something, he talked his way into millions of dollars of free advertising from Canada's biggest newspaper, how he spent 30-plus years building his business by pursuing what he thought was interesting, and how COVID-19 took his entire industry apart in less than three weeks. A quick technical note, the audio quality on David's end of the recording isn't great. David was having problems with his microphone, so we did what I learned to do as a pilot when something's not working. We dropped down to a level of complexity. As a result, his end of the conversation is recorded through his phone. Nonetheless, I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did, and I hope you'll stick around to the end of the episode for a special offer for you, dear listener. Enjoy. So, what do you want to know? Let's do it. What do I want to know? I want to know what is it like to have started and created a business that may address a need that doesn't exist anymore uh, in some deep way. And you, you can also take, feel free to take issue with that question. And we should take a step back. Can you just say what your, what your, how, 
what are a couple of different ways you think about your business? Because I know you think about it from the perspective of an intellectual talent agency. I know you think about it from the perspective of the actual business of booking speakers into places. So yeah, can you kind of walk me through a couple of different aspects of it? Well, the aspirational way to look at this business is that I represent intellectual talent. And, and uh, I, help, I help incredibly smart people monetize their, uh, their, their intellectual skills uh, because they, they exist in worlds that uh, don't necessarily allow them to. You know, obviously, Elon Musk is a very smart uh, person, but he, he exists in a world that is designed to monetize his, um, his intellectual powers. There's people who are you know, behavioral psychologists or other people. I mean, they make comfortable lives. But, um, you know, they don't know, in some sense, how to monetize it. They don't know what they're, quote, worth. And, um, and probably the biggest part of our business is personal appearances. You know, we also do consulting assignments, et cetera. And it's, it's funny you, the way you ask that question because many times I've said to myself, one day the entire world will wake up and realize that spending $25,000 an hour to listen to somebody speak is stupid. And then they did. <laughs> Their entire world woke up and said that. And, uh, and it is funny that it, it's a uniquely North American industry. Um, it doesn't exist in China. China doesn't have China certainly doesn't have motivational speakers, and their productivity is fine. You know, the um, the Japanese auto industry seems to do fine without any um, uh, in motivational speakers. I remember when I first started out in the industry, I got in there by accident, and Somebody from one of the big three in, in, in um, Detroit called me. They wanted a, a motivational speakers because all of their salespeople were depressed because sales were down. And I thought, you just need better engineers. You, you, know, you need better cars, and then people will be inspired. I often think that, that, that a lot of this industry is selling snake oil. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I like to think of it as intellectual talent. Because a lot of it, a lot of it is just BS. You know, be all you can be. I always find, or you know, I always find that high, that motive. I strongly believe in intrinsic motivation, ninety-nine percent of it, and that when somebody who is intrinsically motivated um, reaches a dead end, don't know what doesn't know what to do, and feels unmotivated for a reason at some point, it's generally because there's a problem they don't know how to solve. Um, it's not because they just you know don't have any energy. There's a problem they don't know how to solve, and 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 it's it's frustrating them. And then when you, when you, so when you give them real information that helps them solve that problem, they're motivated again. That's but, the motivation. You, that's the motivation. Like, like, you know, and, if you and need just to, to walk I, on the I'm just going to zoom out. Cause I think I, you know, I know you because you represent me, but just to zoom out a second, I think it's important for a, a listener to know that when you, you do not represent motivational speakers, you represent Right. You represent people who have, I mean, you represent people who have cutting edge research backed kind of intellectual content, right? You represent Angela Duckworth. You represent, um, I mean, M Margaret Atwood. You represent, I mean, people who, who their, their creative force or their intellectual force is something that is, I mean, totally world-class, right? Yeah. Yeah. But 98% of the industry is, is sort of motivational speakers, and, and um, people who, um, you know, who basically, you know, they do book reports. They're good presenters. I always get this question, oh, are they a dynamic presenter? I thought, would you rather have a dy dynamic presenter with bad information or a, a, a good speaker with great information? 
depends on what your they, goal is. Well, but the goal should always be. Imagine your company and you bring in somebody who's a great speaker with bad information. They're going to convince you to do something stupid. They're going to convince you that that that's something you know. So so for example, everybody everybody knows this to be true that millennials are entitled. Well, actually, there's no academic research that supports that notion at all. But a lot of speakers made a lot of money going around telling people that millennials were um, entitled. So I, I would say, for example, that that that, that entire um, uh, attitude towards millennials was created by speakers, and 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 it just went out into the ether. And people believed it. And there's no evidence to support that notion whatsoever anywhere. And so, I mean, part of what you're, I think, trying to do is this with this this framing of an intellectual talent agency is trying to, I mean, really do what you just said, right? Let people that actually have wisdom disrupt the conventional wisdom. Let people that actually have kind of something to say match them with groups who can benefit from from their messages is that is that right yeah and i think what i always look for is somebody like i because i think information is compelling you know like like um you know if you put a great actor in a bad movie this you don't like them but, it, but a, a, an average actor with a great script can transcend it because the, the film is compelling you have to watch it because what's going on is so interesting um, and, um, and that's what a good, that's what I think a compelling speaker does. Like some of the best speakers I've ever seen, for example, if, you know, are, 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 they're not dynamic and they are not funny, but I, you can hear a pin drop. I've been in rooms where you, you could not, nobody breathed for 45 minutes and then they got a huge stand innovation and I've shown people the video and they go, oh, that looks boring. So you, I, I mean, one way to think about you, so you've been 34 years, I think is the number you, you told me you've been, I know. been, I'm 26 years old. This is the miracle of the Canadian healthcare system. What do you mean? I've been doing this for 34 years and I'm only 26. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so at some point, I mean, what you just articulated is a is a pretty clear strategy, right? It's a clear, you know, our our niche as the Lavin Agency is to, you know, represent, help help intellectual talent um, realize their worth, help intellectual talent kind of match them with audiences that need them, or or in other in other contexts. So, at what point did that strategy kind of, you know, rise to the like rise crystallize for you? It took me a few months. Okay, so when, I, when I've, been, I've been in business for 34 years, I've been doing the speaking for 31 years. For three years before that, I actually ran the biggest published lecture series that was probably in the world at the time, uh, because way back when, I think we were the only one. Um, and, you know, in those days, um, you know, we're talking like 1985, uh, lectures were in the school basement, you know, the church basement. You go see 40 people. So I decided that um, I needed a job. I was 26. I didn't go to university. I, I couldn't afford it. I traveled the world. I was a chess master. Um, I did a lot of interesting things. I was a roadie for Bob Marley for a little while. Um, and, and, and I had no discernible skills, but I had a lot of attitude, um, not good attitude, which prevented me from getting jobs. 
So I thought, I'm going to start my, I had to start my own job. It wasn't like I decided to. The world, the rest of the world decided that I should work for myself. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and um, after a while, I got the message. So I, so I decided to become a promoter of, of lectures because nobody else was. I couldn't become a promoter of music. I tried to become a promoter of comedy. And a big agent in New York said, why should I give you my biggest star? And I thought, that's actually a very reasonable question. Why should you? I didn't have a good answer. So I decided to contact Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, and, and you might not remember Hunter S. Thompson, but you might remember Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Fear yeah. and Loathing on the Underground. It was 1985, and I brought him to Toronto for a gig. And we sold it out completely. Um, he was in town for a week, and he left just before the event was supposed to start. And so I stood in front of the theater that was 1,250 seats. It was completely sold out, and he wasn't there. And, um, and I just stand there and say, people were still trying to buy tickets. They wanted souvenirs. I managed to get him back a month later and he had two events for me. The entire Toronto SWAT team was parked in front of the theater. They really were. They thought they were going to be watching. <laughs> it was because uh, it started an hour and a half late. That was, I hold on. I, that, was, that was literally your first event? That was literally? My first event was I ended up getting 2,500 people out to see Hunter S. Thompson in Toronto. That was my first event. And it was, and, and it was, and then, like, that was my first event, right? So my second event, I put together three events in a row, including Abby Hoffman, Timothy Leary, and Eldridge Cleaver. You know, the, Eldridge Cleaver was the founder of the Black Panther Party. Um, Abby Hoffman had been one of the Chicago Eight. And Timothy Leary was, you know, the tune in, tune out, switch on with yeah, LSD. Sure. And these guys weren't on tour. I found, I, I, I managed to find them all. Eldridge Cleaver was actually... Um, selling pottery in a flea market in San Francisco. So I got, I put these three things together and then I went to the, um, the, the head of marketing at the Toronto Star, which is the biggest newspaper in Canada. They had a circulation of 1 million every Saturday. And um, th they agreed to sponsor my lectures and they gave me 100% editorial control and a million dollars worth of advertising space over three years. And I, I was 27 by then. I mean, I, I was old and, and I, I, I like, like I, I, it was like winning the, winning the um, scoring title and the, and the championship in the same year. And I had no idea what I'd done. I just figured, Oh, that's cool. Um, and, that's really um, cool. and for three years I was doing, um, you know, and, and I was selling out every single event. It was like 1800 seats all the time. We brought in people like Noam Chomsky and, and, and others. And it was, it was always, it, I brought in the founder of the Contras. I put together a program called Drugs, Guns, and the CIA with the founder of the Contras and the a CIA colonel who ran the covert war in Angola. And, um, you know, so we had fun. And the start said, yeah, do whatever you want. Do it. We don't care. You just do whatever you want, and we'll market it and promote it, and you'll sell out, and you can have all the money. And um, a few years later, actually, the guy who ran it said, you know, I always thought I was going to have to bail you out, and I never asked you how you were financing this because I really didn't want to know. Says, but I'm impressed. I didn't have to tell you out. But then, but then he died. It was really tragic. One of the finest people, Mike Walkman, I've ever met through business. He passed away. And then the, the, the other people at the Toronto Star was like, well, why don't you bring in, you know, Henry Kissinger? And I'm like, well, Henry Kissinger's already doing whatever black tie dinner. And the founder of the Contras is living in a fishing boat in Miami Beach. And I'm selling out, doing interesting stuff. So no, I'm right. not going to bring in Henry Kissinger. So we went our ways and I started the agency because there wasn't one. I was told there was no agency in Canada when I started 
and certainly I hadn't been exposed to any. Um, and so I uh, decided to become an agent. And then, so to, this is the long answer. So what I did at the beginning is I did what everybody else is. I can give you whoever you want. And I have access to 10,000 speakers. I did, a, and I spent some money and I presented out and, and the phone didn't ring. So then I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I say I have, I could, I represent 10,000 people. I've access to 10, cause that's what all of the agencies did. They're really sort of like multiple listing realtors. You tell me who right. you want. And it said to me, like, I've read every Graham Greene novel. I can't give you a plot synopsis, right? How, how could I possibly explain the difference between 45 different economists? I can't do that. Right. I've read 3,000 books. And they're all there. I can't do that. So what I did is I said, forget, I'm not going to do that at all. I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing. I'm going to find people that I think are interesting, and I'm going to promote them. So the first person I signed up was an oncologist. Um, who talked about communication skills. Because the idea is that if you can tell somebody that they're dying, you can tell them that they had a bad, you know, third quarter. And um, we booked him over 500 times um, over, the, over the years. And he still says one of the most profound things that I've ever heard um, when I think about things is he told me once that stress is caused by what you don't know, not by what you do know. And I think that's very relevant to what's going on now. Because he said when he was an intern, he was, he, and he, the first few times he had to sell somebody they had cancer, he, he, he was really upset. And he said, I'm going to tell these people this, and, and how will they feel? And, and he found that they were all relieved, and it freaked him out. Because they said, he realized that they would rather know that they had cancer than not know. Even though they might have, you know, at that point it might have been 50-50. But knowing was better. So anyway, so then I found a few, like I found a guy who, um, was a, he was at a VC firm. I said, look, you're, you're investing for the future. So you must have, be looking five to 10 years out. So how'd you like to be a futurist? I said, sure, I could be a futurist. So like none of the people that I signed up had ever spoken for money in their lives. Um, and I signed a bunch of these people. And within three years, I was the biggest agency in Canada. And when I started, I didn't know there were any other agencies. A few weeks into it, I discovered there were 11. But three years later, there was only one other agency in the country. I put them all out of business, not and, and not intentionally, and um, and not by doing what they did. I did something right. completely different, and um, and just changed the entire industry over. Right, and I think that's the interesting. Um, I mean, I love that your your insight came from just a kind of deep knowing or deep deep kind of I don't faith is probably not the right word, but. But sort of faith in yourself that like, yeah, if you find something interesting and compelling, then you'll be able to translate that to other people rather than just being a, a middleman, essentially. Well, that's a good observation because when I was a promoter, even the publishers would say, well, why are you bringing in Seymour Hersh? He doesn't have a new book. And, you know, and I said, it doesn't matter that he's got a new book. If he had a new book, there'd be like 1,500 people in Toronto would buy it. So all I want is 1,500 people to buy a ticket to see him speak. And people say, like, oh, this person's not famous. So I say, yeah, he's not famous or she's not famous. But the people who know who this person is will come and see them. Right. And so, so, so and I say that there's, there's, there's a, um, it's a small but interesting um, uh, thing. And, and yeah, and, I, and it wasn't like I felt like I've got to do it differently than everyone else. It, I guess maybe in part it was emotionally and intellectually didn't satisfy me to sell some crappy motivational speaker. But also, it just wasn't working. Because partly, I didn't know right. how to sell them. So when that guy from the big three says, 
I need a motivational speaker. And I'm thinking, no, you need an engineer. But like, I'm not cut out for that business. I am not cut out for the business of selling crap, you know, um, and, and uh, of selling crappy speakers. Because 95% of everything is crap. I'm not going to do that. And so I'm only going to work with people that I actually personally respect. And that was, that was my, uh, and that's what I did. You know, even now, you know, I could make, a, you know, I could make a lot more money if I signed up a bunch of, um, you know, ex-politicians, but I just couldn't do that. Right. And then how did you, how did you make the shift from, you know, working with people like, like this oncologist who, as you said, had never been professional speakers to signing, you know, Margaret Atwood, uh, Angela Duckworth, like to, to these people that are, are, are kind of well-known, well-known names. Also, how, how did I become an overnight success over the past 34 years? Over, over, okay. over 34 years. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, exactly. But I mean, what was the, what was the, you know, or I guess here's a different way to ask it. That's probably a better question and maybe a little bit more specific. Who is the first person that you signed where you didn't have to tell what they did? Well, I mean, it was like, don't forget, I started in Canada. So it was the Canadian version of um, um, Anderson Cooper. We signed up. Uh, and that was the first first big one. And basically, it was like he said, you know, I, 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 I saw him in an event. I, we talked to him. We had a coffee. And he said, look, you who the, you don't represent anybody that anybody has heard of and you're booking them like a hundred times. So, you know, maybe since I'm like the most famous person in the entire country, you could, you could book me too. <laughs> and it was like, I've represented him now for 25, you know, nearly, yeah, nearly 30 years. Um, and that's literally how that happened because, um, uh, you know, it was, um, at some point I sort of made, either it was conscious, I think now I think it was conscious, but probably at the time it wasn't. I decided to be the first alternative to everybody when they, when they leave their team, when they leave, everybody leaves their agency at some point, everybody's dissatisfied, everybody leaves their team, everyone leaves the law firm, but you want to be as the person they go to. So what I decided is that whenever anybody left, they were going to come to us. And that was, I mean, this, this is Pete. Is this Peter? What's his name? Peter Masbridge. Yeah. Peter Masbridge yeah. came to us. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he was the, you know, the biggest newspaper, you know, he's also one like news anchor of the world. I mean, he's a very substantial. Right. In the um, right industry. Coincidentally, he, he remember I met him because he was the MC at the national business book award where oh, you right. were also yeah, there. Right. 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 <laughs> and it yeah. turned out he was represented by you, which is great. So, so that's like, I love that story, David, because it, it turns out basically what he said was, you're really good at representing all these obscure people. You must be like, you actually must be really good at this. Like, how about like, how about you? You help me. Yeah, because it was sort of like, well, anybody can represent, you know, me. But but the fact that you represent those people so well, maybe you could represent me even better, you know, and um, and I think there's some truth to that. Uh, and I think also I just had a different attitude because I didn't know anything about the industry or sales. I, I was, and I played chess. I was a chess master. So to me, it was always about problem solving. When somebody called up and they, I'm running a conference. To me, it was always like, well, what's it about? What are you trying to accomplish? You know, because it was like a problem we're trying to solve. The problem is which speaker is right for your event. Um, and um, so you just have a conversation about it. And, and, 
and that's what I found out was the difference too. Is I would tell people who they should book, and other other uh, the the others would be like you know real estate brokers. Like which which speaker do you want to book, and I'll get them for you. Well, what's the right. you know, what, what are you value? paying for it? There's no and value. What what percentage of I guess uh, event sponsors. I mean, we can let's we can rewind six months pre-COVID. What percentage of event sponsors kind of really approached you in a way that was sort of felt like a partnership versus was that? Well, I would say that that that, that number that number has has been dropping um, definitely. Um, I think technology has um, it's altered the way it's actually made people less decisive. So if you think back, you know, thirty years ago. You know, there, there wasn't even there weren't even VHS, right? So what we do is we'd have a discussion about a speaker, and they would, and then you know, I would mail them the, the a little bio so they could see their credentials. There was no internet, and and I would send them some references, and they would they would call you know Chris at um, you know IBM and say I I hear you had this person speak. What were they like? Oh, and then and then they and then there might be two people involved. You know, the, the the person I'm dealing with is often the decision maker or works with the decision maker. And there's two people involved. And now the what happens is, and the conferences are pretty good. You know, they make good decisions. They booked interesting speakers. And the other thing that they would do is they would book new speakers. They would they, they, you know they would take a risk. They would take a chance yeah. on somebody who's new. So now what you get is you get. Like, I had a conversation a little while ago. The group they had they had three spots on their program and they had 20 people on the speaking committee. And their job was to bring in 20 ideas. So that's 400 names to pick three speakers. And also they're going to be, remember when I said at the beginning, I said, what I would say is like, I saw like problem solving. What problem are you trying to solve? It's like a chess game. Now it's like, they just look at videos of speakers. They don't know what they're trying to accomplish. They've never asked themselves, what message do we want the speaker to deliver? You know, they're looking at mountain climbers and they're looking at economists and they actually haven't decided. It's like, um, Typical way of hiring somebody where there's no job description. Are you hiring an accountant, a market? We're like, what are you hiring? And and they don't know. And what, then what they do is they watch videos. And I try and tell people, really, like, you're watching a video. Really, when was the last time you watched three hours of Bruce Springsteen videos? Never. Totally. Well, totally. yeah. Would you ever go to a three-hour Bruce Springsteen concert? Yeah. So you know, a lot, a lot, a few hundred million that people have, or your favorite musician. We don't understand the difference between live and video. And uh, and the, so they, look, they also look for the wrong things. So I think it's and they also look at who was good two years ago rather than who will be good next year. So it's harder. There's so much here. There's so much here that I think is interesting to to dig into. I mean, one is the future, right? So the thing that I know you're thinking a lot about, which is how do you make something that is intermediated through a screen feel like a Bruce Springsteen concert, right? Feel much more like a concert than. Than, a, than watching a YouTube video. What are the tools and what are the ways that you can create participation in this new virtual world that we're all playing in? But I wanna, I wanna just hold that question aside for a minute because I wonder if you've thought about, I mean, one of the things you just described was now what people actually need help with is a step before you typically get involved, right? It's the it's the what is the nature of this event? What's the goal? What's the kind of strategy of event planning? And have you played in that space at all? Like, is that a thing that that um, has been any part of your business? 
Well, it's the same. It used to be, and I, and I would I would actually argue that the people who are spending two million dollars on a conference have never asked themselves that question either. Mm-hmm. They actually don't know why they're having an event because I've had these discussions, and like, what are the objectives? They don't know. They don't know. Most most organizations, you know, oh, it's, we should have a conference. They don't know why. You know, you can tell because they, you can tell they don't know why because if they knew what they were looking for. Um, they, 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 they wouldn't say they're looking for an economist and then book a mountain climber. You know, they, they, they would book, um, you know, they would, they would be a, uh, they, so most of the times they actually don't know what they're looking for. Um, and, um, um, and it's, 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 it, 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 you know, we, we've tried doing this where we have given people say questionnaires, you know, why don't you ask your team these things? Um, and, um, you know, cause I frequently now dealing with maybe a, a, a lower level of an organization and part of their job is then to manage their boss who's spending, you know, four minutes a week thinking about this and then, and then just says, oh, well, why don't we get, you know, Bill Gates to come to our event? And, and you know, I get, still get that all the time. It's like, well, actually they, they're not, they, it's not going to happen, you know, and, um, but people, Anyway, they uh, so they they don't ask themselves tough questions about what they're trying to accomplish. Right, right. That's interesting. Because the other thing is, they don't even ask the audience this. Like, they, you, if you look at the questionnaires on most events, it's like, how was the food? What was this? They should be doing a questionnaire a month beforehand. Say, why are you coming to this event? What are you hoping to get out of it? Yeah. You know, and then at the end of it, they said, you know, you said, you, think back to what you said you were hoping to get out of it. Did you get that out of it? They don't ask tough questions. Well, and interestingly, that those are the questions that that our friend, my my peer, and your uh, Misha speaker, Misha asks, right? I mean, those are the questions yeah. that he asks all the time. And and Misha Globerman, he's I mean, he is really a genius in um, realizing that you know ninety five percent of the work, or maybe maybe eighty five percent of the work of of running something successful like this is in those questions, either thinking about them ahead of time, asking your audience in real time, but just just defining the the goals. That's one of the things. Every every time I talk to Misha, he 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 always brings me one step back. Like, well, why do you actually want to have this conversation? What's you know, what's the point of this? And I think it's it's really wonderful. So you know, from the perspective of your business, when 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 did you first hire five people? When did when had you hired five people, and what did those first five people do? And well, think, yeah, it's like when do you go from having a job to having a business? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's like a lot of people think they're a small business, but a, a friend of mine, my futurist friend, he explained it to me. He said, David, when you when you hire somebody who does the exact same thing as you, you know, like somebody who doesn't assist you in doing your job, but actually is autonomous to you, that's when you have a business. So for yeah. a long time, I just had two or three people helping me do what I did. They do the paperwork or they do this or whatever. But when I, I hired an agent who would actually do sales independent of me with other people that I didn't have time to talk to, that was when it started becoming a business, you know, and that was, um, you know, uh, yeah. So that was like, you know, four, four or five people at that point. Um, and it's still a niche. I mean, it's 35 people at the max. So it's still a small, smallish enterprise, but as somebody else pointed out, you know, how many professional services firms last 34 years? Yeah. It, it's because there's a, there's a lot of egos involved in uh, professional services. And there's a lot of ways to go wrong. 
Yeah. There's a lot of because I've had I've had at least five people leave me because they knew that what I did was so easy and that I was so bad at it and I didn't do anything that they would start their own agency and they would just put us out of business because they were just better at it than we were and and they've all disappeared and um, it, it, it's harder than it looks. One of my little theories is that everybody knows that their job is harder than your job and that they can do your job better than you can. Right. There's a sort of, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of um, egoistic bias. We all, we all just sort of walk around with, um, which is, I think, interestingly true in, in the consulting world also. Right. I mean, it's very um, Jeff Bellman, who is a, a, writer wrote a book called the consultants calling is a friend of misha's misha introduced me to his work um and, and he just he writes about how as a as a you know someone who works with organizations you're really blessed with this outsider status you're blessed with this ability to come in and see the dynamics that are enmeshing people and see what doesn't work about them and and one of the things that one of the points he makes so beautifully is don't forget that if you were in that organization, you would also be enmeshed with those dynamics, right? You would also be kind of caught up in them, caught up in the, you know, the politics or the metrics or the, you know, quarterly targets or whatever. But by by having a different perspective, you sort of can avoid that that kind of enmeshment. I, I, that sort of feels like some kind of analogy to me. It's true. I think the, to digress, the, the consultant also feels like well, they can come in and they have fresh eyes. But what they also don't have is the eyes that realize how hard it is to implement some of these things. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a great book written by somebody from the JFK School of Government on Leadership. And it was the only time I've ever read a book on leadership that pointed out that most people actually don't want to, not only don't they want to follow, but that there's a lot of people in every organization who wants the leader to fail. Mm. They actually, they actually, they legitimately want the, and, and, um, there's an example of this. One of my former clients was the chief marketing officer of a company called Coca-Cola. Okay, I've heard he of was, it. Uh, he'd been CMO for like about nine, nine years or so, and he finished second in the race to be president of Coke, which meant that you know they gave him a tenured professorship at uh, the Haas School of Business at Berkeley and a very nice package, but he was gone. So the person who took his place had been conspiring to get his job for a long time. And, and even though he'd been like the second in command, because it, and this is written about actually in I Want the World to Buy a Coke, that they had this person who was actually um, um, counterproductive. And then when he finally got the job, uh, he lasted six months and he was gone. Um, and and, and um, But it was interesting that even a large organization, even when they recognized it, or maybe they only recognized it in hindsight. Um, and I have no idea what point I was trying to make or how we got into this. But, That's um, okay. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> so, so okay, thirty-five people at the at the max. I mean, managing five people is different than managing thirty-five people, although possibly not that different, right? You can still get thirty-five people in a room and and talk to them. But what what are the things that you had to learn as you built this business up? What are the things that you're better at now than you were, you know, year three and a half? Well, I was a very bad man. I'm a very bad manager. Um, and at one point I brought in consultants to help me go from like 35 to 60 because I felt that, that I'd reached, I'd reached some sort of impasse. So what I, what I realized is that, for example, I don't know how to, how to manage average people, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and I often found that people would come in and they would be, 
dispirited. They, they would perform fine. They'd be fine at their job. They would be great at it, but they were good, good enough. But they, but somehow they didn't enjoy it, and I didn't know how to make them enjoy it. Whereas the people who came in and were stars, I just left them alone. I never, I, you know, they just do their thing. And, um, and, he, and again, it's not, everyone thinks it's easy to manage stars, but it's not because you actually do have to let them do their thing, and you do have to accept the, the idiosyncrasies. And, and, um, um, and even, you know, the first agent I had, she hadn't sold anything in three months, the first three months, and she was really upset. And I said, are you doing what you need to do? And she said, yes. I said, well, then don't worry about it. Eventually, it'll, throw, it'll work out. And, and it did. She became really successful. Um, so I think that it's, it, 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 so I created an environment in which stars could, could, could re do really well. I mean, I had people who've been with me for, uh, for 25 years and, and who are like fantastic at their job and, you know, and, and I do nothing. Um, you know, occasionally I, you know, I might course correct once a year, but the people who, who needed more help, I didn't know, I don't know how to help people. Um, uh -huh. in that regard, I didn't know how to, um, um, you know, to, to look through people's client list and suggest, let's go through it one by one, like that sales management one-on-one stuff. I just couldn't do it. Mentorship. I never, you're, not, I never, you're, you're not a mentor. You're not, you're not, you don't relate in that way to people. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I don't want to be. It's like I, I, I physically can't. No judgment. I, yeah. It's, it's like asking, you know, a hockey player to suddenly play football. It's just like it's not going to look good. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and other people know that. I mean, one of the things that I'm very bad at is like, I will say you should do this. And then six, and then I'll just forget that I said it. And then everybody, and everybody knows that I will forget that I said it. And everybody knows that two months later I will remember and, and expect that it was done. But since it wasn't, I'll just remind them again. And then they still want, it doesn't, you know, so it's very easy not to do the things that David asks you to do. <laughs> Cause I don't follow up. Right. And, and I think in a sense, that's not your, well, what I think is interesting about you is, so a lot of times when leaders, when they have that dynamic, they have a, um, you know, a, a, a right-hand person who does that follow-up and, and who does, you know, who, who kind of like completes the, completes the picture. But I think you don't have that, right? I think you, you, your strategy has been more that the people that are successful in that environment will will grow and will be successful and the people that aren't will find a different home because it's not a good match for them is that is that right yeah but on the other hand if i'm going to grow the company I, I need to have you know good average people to be successful and to, and to enjoy being 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 as successful as they can be and so i have actually tried to hire like uh, coos before um and um and it's a it's a weird fit because one of the problems is when you're running an idios, very idiosyncratic uh, company in a very idiosyncratic industry, nobody hears about it. So one of the things that I hate about, um, many things I hate about technology, but something like LinkedIn, I think, has destroyed the ability to hire people, even though it professes to do the opposite. Because now when you go in LinkedIn, you say, I want job X, so therefore I'm going to search on these six word items. So where's the serendipity? How are you accidentally going to find out about this really cool job at a speaker's bureau or an intellectual talent agency that might be perfect for you, but no one's going to type it in. You're never going to find it. Uh, whereas, you know, um, um, you know, 20 years ago, I remember once putting in a display ad in, the, in a, new, a physical newspaper called Brilliant Misfits Wanted. I love and, this story. And I yes. Had, 
Yeah, and it was like about three inches by three inches. I had people come in two years later who'd cut that ad out and had kept it for two years. Um, you know, but now there's no newspaper to put that in. Yeah, no, it's 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 true. It's it's They're very fine people. Yeah, I found one COO who left because she got pregnant, left, um, had to get, and she lived too far away. You know, Aaron, and she was great. And she came to me because a friend of mine was a professor at, in business school, and he told me she's the best student he's ever had. And so I thought, well, that's cool. So we, I interviewed her, and, and she was great. I didn't think anything of it. I think well, she's not going to be interested. And then she called me about a month later. And, and, and she pursued the job because she felt that, and actually he had also told me, he said, you're going to learn more by being David's right-hand man than being five levels down at the bank. You know? Totally. Yeah. And, and um, you know, and, and it's true. It's true. So, it was, so it, was a more, it was actually more exciting. For certain people, it's a more exciting opportunity because it's also, everybody wants a startup. I'm not a startup, but I'm a small company that's actually profitable up until this year. You know, every year we've been growing. Right. And, uh, and, and that also presents interesting challenges. Like what? Well, I mean, um, well, you look at other opportunities. If you know you're growing at 15%, I mean, you can, it's easy to get complacent. I mean, you and I were talking about this as the idea that now everybody's going to be a startup because, you know, there's going to be less, there's going to be less business for everyone. And so half the businesses might disappear just because they they can't they they're not good enough, um, and um, um, so there's challenges like how do you, how do you keep expanding how do you how do you like I always felt that we actually were in some sense underperforming that we could do a lot better that there were people who didn't realize sort of how good we were at what we did because we were lumped in with all of those other speakers bureaus selling motivational speakers so it's sort of like being you know you have a Ferrari dealership. Uh, on, on a street that has nothing but, um, um, you know, selling used, um, 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 you know, think cars from the 60s. Um, and um, so that, that, right. that's how, um, but I thought there were some things there. And there were also some things we talked about where I, I want to get into before it was the podcast or, or, um, or consulting and some other ways of, of um, uh, representing our intellectual talent you know, boards of directors, advisory boards. There are interesting opportunities there. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens to them. And why do you think, what has inhibited you from, I mean, we just choose boards of directors, for example. What has inhibited you from from trying to build that business? Well, part of me, you know, maybe maybe I get lazy. Maybe, okay, you know, I mean, I've, I've, got a, I've got a good thing going. So I can just do, I can do, you know, if I put, you know, Two percent effort into this thing, it, it, the results will be, um, um, you know, exponential. Whereas I have to put a lot of effort into this other new thing, you and know. But the work. idea is, it may not work. So, so to me, it was almost like I just like to find new people. I can hire people. So what I, I try and do is, is I also try and find, you know, who I was at twenty-seven, and try and find those people. Because the, the bizarre thing is, because I, I remember thinking this when I was like thirty, I thought if one of my competitors had offered me a job. At any point when I'd started the business in the first couple of years when I was struggling, if any of them had just offered me a job at like 50 grand a year, I would have said yes. Yeah, and interesting. They should have. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think there's a lot to there's a lot to plumb there. Um, uh, so, as you said, 
profitable growing until now, right? People may come to this podcast in, in, you know, a year or more from now, but right now we are kind of collectively in North America, um, basically all staying at home for COVID-19. And you as a person who runs a business whose main way of making revenue was sending you know, smart people to speak at gatherings of big people. Uh, there's sort of an open question on what that what that looks like going forward. Um, certainly now it doesn't exist, right? And and kind of wondering, um, you know, how that how it will uh, change if it will change. But I kind of want to ask something more personal, which is, you know, this is clearly your business. Your name is David Lavin. The agency is called the Lavin Agency. I mean. I guess I'm I'm curious from from an from an ego perspective and I I mean that just in the in the kind of neutral sense of the word ego what um what's that like what is that like what is that like to see this thing that you have built just um take a really dramatic hit Yeah I mean like I said it took, it took 34 years to build it and and um and 3 weeks for covid to kill it um, and it's, um, and of course the, the, um, you know, we were hit early because conferences started canceling quickly, but now the, the repercussions of this are, 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 are everywhere. And, um, you know, we don't even know if there's going to be an economy in by September, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, I, I think if we go back in time a few weeks, none of us, you know, very few of us thought that we would still be in, I mean, it's been almost a month, but I've been working at home. Yeah, like nobody. If you suggested that to me or anybody a few months ago, we would have all thought, "No, that's that's impossible." And um, so, will there be an economy? I mean, you know, you you tell 150 million people not to go to work for a month, it might affect things. Um, You know, and um, you know what's going to happen? You know, the restaurants. I see restaurants closing now. Landlords are evicting them, although I don't know who they're going to get to fill those restaurants in the future. But, but those kind of businesses are hand-to-mouth. I mean, I, I worry more about my staff. I mean, from the, you know, like I, you know, I'm 61. I've got, I, I can survive. You know, um, I, I could cut the company from 35 people to five and probably do something. Um, but, you know, what about the other 30 people? How do they eat? Well, you know, th- th- right. this is this is a this is a, a huge societal issue that that um, um, th- that's going to have that th- I can't even imagine what the answer is. So, from an ego perspective, you know, yeah, it's like something completely out of out of my control. Um, you know, in some ways, that's better from an ego perspective than you know me having a breakdown and calling all my clients and, and screaming at them or something, you know, <laughs> then it's my fault. That would be my fault. Then it's like, you know, yeah, <laughs> like David lost his business because he lost his mind. That makes sense. But, you know, I, I, you know, I lost my business because somebody ate a bat in China. It's like really sort of pissy. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to, you know, it. so, yeah, so it's um, um, and um, but I, I worry more about uh, I worry more about the uh, I think the entire generation of uh, of kids in their twenties are screwed. You know, they, they, 
you know, a lot of them are having, you know, they're taking, they're learning, they're learning online, which is not very good. And um, they've lost all their part-time jobs. They can't afford university. They're, um, they're going to walk into an environment where there are no jobs. Um, you know, I think we, we could have another lost generation. That worries yeah. me much more than this. You know? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I also really worry about that. I mean, the, the, you know, you can just slice it at different, at different stages of it, but it's like, if you just graduated from, if you're 22 and you just graduated from university and you had a job offer that now has gotten pulled or, you know, you're 21 and you're going to have to go on the job market next year, or that, that was your plan. It's like, it's, it's hard to know where, it's hard to know where this, this, this stops, you know, it's hard to know where the, the bottom comes in again. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, all of these, 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 government grants which are needed, will they lead to hyperinflation that we saw many years ago? Right. Uh, you know, I don't know. It, it, it seems that no matter what solution people came up with, they were all bad. Um, and um, was there a better, was there a good solution somewhere? Probably not. So yeah. we'll see what happens. I think earlier on I was thinking, um, you know, everyone thinks that entrepreneurs are risk takers. And, and, and first of all, a different subject, but I'm not even sure if there are any entrepreneurs anymore. But, but I never saw myself as a risk taker. I just saw myself as somebody who could deal with uncertainty. Like I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew when it happened, I could deal with it. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, you know, that, that I was somehow that I would get through. Um, and, uh, so I feel like, you know, I'll get through this, but I don't think that's a universal characteristic. And I worry that, um, you know, I mean, I got three kids in their right their twenties, and um, it's going to be really tough. Yeah. So I want to I want to bring us back kind of to to close, um, where, you know, it just struck me. So you you invited me to do this event that you guys are putting on next week, WTF? Um, yeah. Which what's the future? What's the future? Which. Um, <laughs> Which will will already have happened by the time this hits um, podcast feeds, but we can put in the show notes if there's any links to um, any, any any links to that. Um, but it just it struck me as we were talking that I mean essentially you're going full circle, right? Like you're booking now events that you're putting together that you're running. I mean you know, this is, it, it's not going to be 1500 people in Toronto. It's going to be who knows how many people from all over the world who are tuned into this. But I, I'm curious, you know, to your point that people don't watch, people don't sit down and, and watch Springsteen concert videos for three hours, but they'll go to a Springsteen concert. Like, how do you think, how, how, how are we collectively going to figure out how to take keep the energy inject energy into these kinds of things what is that gonna what is that gonna look like and i know you don't have any answers yet but but what are your thoughts what are you thinking about now well we're experimenting a lot of things you know because misha's involved he's going to be the host and he and i have been talking a lot about this and really what i think is about the audience so people are telling me oh you want to have a way of q a with the speaker i say no no i couldn't care less about a q a between the audience and the speaker what i care about is the q a between the audience and the other and the audience yeah. How do I get the audience to talk to the audience? Um, because actually that's why people go to events. Right. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I remember very clearly one of those, those moments when I was promoting events and, and 
people were walking out and I was listening to them and they were talking about what the speaker had just said. And that's, that's rare. I mean, when you leave a movie, you say, oh, I like that movie, next. You don't really talk about it. You know, there are very few shared experiences that we can actually talk about. Uh, first of all, most experiences, intellectual experiences, aren't shared anymore. Like when you're in university, you might stay up until 5 o'clock in the morning talking about everything. You don't get to have those, those conversations anymore. Um, you get to, um, 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 and, and, you know, you'll read a great book, but nobody else will. Was at university, or you know, they would somebody would have read the same book, and you could get excited about it together. Uh, or there's a new album, you get excited about it together. Those intellectual pursuits don't necessarily happen anymore. But if you go to a lecture, you know, you can engage with the other people and talk about what you heard and how that affected you, and and you can ask questions. And, right. um And 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 questions are an interesting thing too, because I find nowadays nobody, people only ask questions because they have a hidden agenda. They already know what answer. The they performative want. question. Yeah, is performative? Is that what it's called? I just made that um, up, but it sounds good, right? It sounds good. It sounds like it sounds like forty-seven years of research went into that. Uh, totally. That. I oh, hang I hang out with a lot of sociologists, so yeah, performative. Yeah, it's a performative good, question. Good to be buzzword compliance. <laughs> um, yeah, and 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 so, but but you know, if you ask somebody about you know what's the how old are the people, somebody who died from COVID, people automatically assume that you have an agenda when you ask that question. Now, it just might be a research question, you just might be curious, uh, or maybe you do have an agenda, but, but there's an assumption now that there's an agenda. So, so, so the conversations are, are, aren't as um, vibrant. And so what I think is, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to bring it back to the time when we were so excited about ideas that we would stay up all night and talk about them and not judge and learn. You know, that we would yeah. we would actually ask a question because we're hoping that our minds would be changed. We're not asking a question in the hope that your mind will be changed. Yeah. That's beautiful. What a beautiful aspiration for, you know, even if we do start seeing each other again in person, what a beautiful aspiration for this, I think, sort of filling in the missing link of what, what has... Um, been missing about connecting with people online right not just now but kind of i think even even previous to now um and even offline you know connection is right. is, is I, I you know i could rant for a long time about uh propaganda channels also known as social media um but they don't they don't allow us to actually connect with each other but they give the illusion of connection uh, i i always think that certain mediums are about they're about like twitter and everything email it's about me telling you something that's on my mind but it's not giving you it's not it's not listening to what's on somebody else's mind mm. so anyway i i rant now and, you know that's what i do i get older and i just rant i i don't know david i'm gonna guess that when you were 30 you also ranted yeah i might have <laughs> <laughs> Um, great. Um, is there anything I didn't ask about that, that you want to share? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the objective of the, this, this, uh, this event is. I mean, you told me you wanted to talk about sort of business, but I'm not sure if we really talked about business or we talked about what. So what does your, what does your audience want to know? Why, why does your audience tune into you? Well, I don't have an audience yet. So this is a, an experiment. Um, 
I think what my audience wants to well, I'll t here, I'll I'll do exactly what you did, and I'll say, I'll tell you what I'm interested in hearing about, and then my hope is, or my bet is, that there's an audience that's also interested in hearing that, about that too. Um, I'm interested in hearing about stories of people that have built businesses. I'm interested in hearing about how they made big kind of decisions at different points that, that shape the arc of those businesses. Um, I'm interested in hearing about how this per, how this current moment is affecting them, both their business, but also in, in their personal stories. Um, and I'm interested in how they're thinking about taking the work that they have done over the years to get to this point and how they think they will take that going forward. So, I mean, if the, you know, that's what I'm interested in and, and, you know, by coincidence, cause I was asking questions and I asked you if you wanted to, to chat about this, I think that's exactly what we, what we talked about. Yeah. It's interesting. There are, there are times in over the last years, 30 years where I was actually more sure that the business was that I was about to go under than I am now. So interesting. Uh, in the sense that, or, or that it would be um, like now I look at it and say, you know, I mean, I, I used to, I used to be um, sure that, you know, within a few, um, you know, months we just go under, that something was going to happen or, you know, our top speaker left or something happened. And, um, and also I'm just naturally pessimistic, you know, and, um, but now it's sort of like, okay, you know, we, this, this, so this is, um, this is survivable for me. You know, it's, it's going to be tough. Yeah. And there's, there's a, to, to digress, there's a, there seems to be a lack of leadership in the world, you know, no. No, no. but nowhere, no, nowhere does anybody seem to be sort of like in charge, right? You know? Like there's nobody that you turn to and say, "Wow, this is this person's this person is is uh, one of my clients once explained leadership to me. He says, leadership is getting people to do something they don't want to do, but to get them to to embrace the experience of doing something they really don't want to do. That's what a real leader does. Nobody, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's a way in which. And I'm certainly not the first to say this, but I think there's a way in which the kind of this present moment is, you know, because I think about complex systems all the time. Um, one of the things I think about is one of the analogies I like is the avalanche, right? Where you you might have a mountain that has these kind of layers of, of snowpack on it that makes it particularly conducive to a kind of big, you know, a small trigger causing a really big event. And... Um, I think what we are seeing now in the world is the, you know, s centuries worth of snowpack, right? We're seeing centuries worth of snowpack not not be remade, but to kind of be exposed, right? So we can see all of these underlying features that we've built into society from, you know, how we elect democratic leaders in in the US, for example, which is the context I've thought most about it to, you know, our economic system to our social safety net or lack of social safety net to the way we provide healthcare, how fragmented that is. And, um, 
I think the lack of leadership is a is a symptom rather than a cause in some really deep way. I think we've made lots of choices over the years. Oh yeah, that- yeah. This is the this is the natural consequence, actually, in some ways of what right. of what of, of how of where we got here. Like if it wasn't going to be this, it would have been something else. Um, we we've created our own bad luck. You should read the narrow corridor. You know, and and because um, Duran is speaking on Wednesday, but but this is actually one of the best books I've ever read. Wow! And he was writing, and he was writing about this stuff, the the, the, the you know, um, almost exactly what you were describing with the avalanche metaphor, uh, three four years ago. Cool. And, 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 yeah, he said the institutions cannot hold. Yeah, that they are falling apart, and they, and and the narrow corridor, as you said, is that liberty has been a narrow corridor. It, it's only existed in short increments of time, and in very small places, uh, you know, been small, relatively small populations. Yeah, and it is much more fragile than we think it is. Yeah. So wow. on, on that depressing note. <laughs> on that note, David, I want to say thank you. Um, you know, I've loved talking to you over the years. Um. I'm so glad you're willing to, to, first of all, jump on the phone and, and chat about this stuff. And then, um, yeah, agree to be the inaugural guest on the podcast. I'm going to listen to that again because I, th- I remember saying something I thought was good, but I can't remember what it was. Okay. <laughs> Bye. David Lavin, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening and be well until our next breakdown.